I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of I-94. And in fact, our first edition of I-94 live here in about four months. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, Jamie. Good to be back. You know, we're going to see how many screw-ups I make today. It's been a while since I've done this. Has it been four months? It's yeah. been four months. Day, four months to wow, the day. Yeah. So, hey, before we get going, we had a great guest for you today. We're going to be talking with Charles Brandt. He's hanging on the line right now for us. He, of course, is the author of the book, I Heard You Paint Houses, which has been made into a movie, which we will discuss, which you are very, very probably familiar with. But before we do, I just want to thank everybody who's been following along and listening to i-94 we've been running repeats uh, over the last four months obviously the pandemic uh, has been very hard on on everybody so we want to thank all of you for following along i-94 i-94 reading books and supporting lump and radio thanks yeah, so much thank you everybody yeah thank we you. have a bunch of new stuff coming up too so stay tuned we do in fact uh, after we do charles today we're going to be doing lisa Tadeo of uh, three women on tuesday and then we're going to be right back in the swing of things we've got a packed schedule right through september on that note, uh, I do want to introduce Mr. Brandt. He is calling, well, we're calling him, actually. Uh, he is down on the East Coast, where I bet the weather is nice. Mr. Brandt, how are you this morning? Doing great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Charlie, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, as I mentioned, he is the author of the book, I Heard You Paint Houses. We will hear some selections from that book in a little bit. But as I teased, uh, Mr. Brandt's book was also made into a rather famous movie by one Mr. Martin Scorsese called The Irishman. It was nominated for, I believe, at least 12 Oscars. I didn't. Was it really? I don't think it won any, but I believe it was nominated across multiple categories. And, of course, it is a very popular film on Netflix. It did win one. I can't remember what it did was. Did it win one? Yeah. Charlie, you'd know that. Well, it won an ensemble cast, uh, but it wasn't an Oscar. It was a, a SAG. Oh, one SAG okay. after award. But it, it had ten nominations in all the important categories: best picture, best screenwriter, best this and that. That's great. Uh, it just didn't win any. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that's that's an incredible achievement, though. You must be very proud that your book was made into, uh, you know, such a well-regarded film. I would think that'd be awesome. Awesome, very proud, and and very fortunate to have been involved in the making of it super uh, they, they kick the writers to the curb normally when they buy the book they thank you and uh, and off you go on your own but th these people put me up in a hotel in manhattan where i grew up and um had me as part of the script meetings uh, i would walk over to marty scorsese's house every time there was, there was to be a script meeting it wasn't every single day and then after we're done with the script, and we had a script that we were all happy with, that is uh, Marty and I and uh, Steve Zillian, the great screenwriter, Oscar-winning screenwriter for Schindler's List, and uh, Bob De Niro. So the four of us would meet at Marty's. And once we reached the script that we were thrilled with, uh, they began uh, filming. And I have a, a, a severe allergy to mold, and so I can't stay back east in the summertime too long and so uh, we have a house in sun valley idaho where, where i'm talking to you from at this point mm. but they they put a, a young woman in charge of me <laughs> and whenever they, whenever they had a question they would say uh, call charlie about this call charlie about that so i was really on the set even though i couldn't physically be there till the end in uh, in the end of the making of the movie uh, it was by then winter, and I, I was fine. And so I was. My wife and I, Nancy, were there for the for the end stuff and for the wrap and for the wrap party. 
and it was such a thrill. Amazing. Well, let's talk a little bit about the book that this is based on. Obviously, uh, for those people that don't know, The Irishman is based on the death of Jimmy Hoffa and the life of Frank the Irishman Sheeran. And Charlie's book is uh, about uh, Frank's confession to killing uh, Jimmy Hoffa. Before we even get into this, uh, Charlie, I think, you know, we were talking about this before we went on the air today. Uh, you and I are of an age where we know who Jimmy Hoffa is, but many people, I'm not sure, still do. So can you tell us a little bit about why this was such an important killing and and who Jimmy was in the first place, why he commanded such attention in America? Jimmy was the uh, president of the uh, International Teamsters Union, the truck drivers of the world, and uh, he was a very outspoken man. Uh I like to tell people that uh, in in that day and age, everyone would be able to recognize Elvis Presley when he was speaking. Well, everyone in America could recognize that tough voice of Jimmy Hoffa when he was speaking out. Uh, We we would have no problem with uh, health care if Jimmy Jimmy had had survived to to do his union work. Um, But he crossed some people. Uh, he crossed some mafia people that he had been close to, and uh, they felt he had to go, and so they uh, sent Frank Sheeran after him. Charlie, I wanted to ask you and or your thoughts on one of the things about Sheeran that was absolutely insane to me is that he had logged 411 days of combat in World War II, and he was also under General Patton, and his unit uh, was committed some atrocities at what we would look at as war crimes now, but do you think that was what made Frank the killer that he became was his experience in World War II? Great question. Uh, I will tell you that Frank, uh, first of all, I was an interrogator and a homicide investigator, and I was asked once uh, at a speaking engagement how many homicides I investigated, and when I got home, I put it together in my mind that I, I counted 56 of them. And uh, I wrote a book on interrogation called The Right to Remain Silent. Uh, I was uh, a, a person who taught interrogation to cops and taught interrogation to other lawyers. And uh, at the time, the book came out, uh, The Right to Remain Silent, all about interrogation, uh, and based on cases I had solved through interrogation. I got a, a, a letter from then-President Ronald Reagan, unsolicited, thanking me for my effort on behalf of law-abiding citizens with my book. It's a kind of law and order book. And um, um, anyway, I Heard You Paint Houses uh, has within it um, a a lot of techniques of of interrogation. And, um, excuse me, and so I... um, uh, I did well with that book. It was 1988, but I was a practicing trial lawyer, and I had too much to do, and so uh, I didn't write anymore for a while. And then uh, I got a call from a, a member of the, of the Philly mob, a guy named Franny McDonald. He was an associate in the Philly mob, and he uh, he wanted me. He wanted they wanted to hire me to get Frank Sheeran out of jail prematurely. He had already served 10 years. He was 70 years old, and he had another 10 years to serve. And so I began meetings 
uh, I got him out, and we began having meetings because uh, this may sound hard to believe, but people want to confess. That's the first thing I teach when I teach. People have a need to confess. And Frank had a need to confess, particularly about killing Jimmy Hoffa. And he confessed 25 to 30 homicides to me. When I tried to get him to talk about the war, he would yell at me. He wouldn't answer my questions. He was very belligerent toward me. And normally he was a, a perfect gentleman toward me. Yeah, my grandfather was in the 45th Division. He never talked about that once, ever. He talked about not once one thing, Frank, the smell from Dachau, the camp. That was it, from two miles away. Yeah, and Frank did. It, I got Frank to talk. And the way I did is I, I uh, got a hold of um, uh, uh, of a big big history of World War II by Martin Gilbert, uh, Churchill's uh, biographer. And I looked up his division and and traced his, his travels and little by little got him to feel that he could talk to me about him. And yes, he, he committed war crimes, what would be considered war crimes today. But it was, of course, on, on the orders of Patton. Patton specifically told them, <clears throat> told that division, I want you to be my most feared division. And if, uh, if a German wants to surrender, how do you know it's not a trick? It's not a trap that's being set for you. And uh, in the beginning, Sharon, when he was yelling at me, said that uh, Emmett, his, his lawyer in a, the first RICO case ever, Frank was the uh, defendant in the first RICO case in Philadelphia. And uh, he um, he said to me, Emmett, my lawyer, wanted me to talk about the war during my RICO trial to help me with the jury. And I wouldn't talk about it then to save my ass. I'm not going to talk about it now to you so that you can sell books. Those were the exact words to me. So it took quite a bit of, um, of my interrogation stuff uh, to soften him up and get him to talk about it. And I think it did him good. I know it did him good to talk about it. But so there was a... 411, 411. There was <laughs> and that a, number kept there, There's a quote in the book from Patton, and it, he was or, he ordered to kill and to continue to kill. And the more we killed, the less we'd have to kill later, and better off the division would be in the long run. And I, I basically, what I understand of that was that it was just a take-no-prisoners affair. Yeah. Well, he was told by a lieutenant that if he, um, if he is told by a lieutenant to take a prisoner behind the line for questioning, he does that. If the uh, lieutenant adds the coda and hurry back, the hurry back part means go some distance with this prisoner, kill him, and hurry back here. <laughs> so, you know, Jamie asked you earlier, Charlie, about uh, who Jimmy Hoffa was, and trying to give maybe some context for younger listeners, but also the the idea of the mafia and what it was. Um, you talk, you write about it in the book uh, in the fifties at the. Uh, the Appalachian bust is that is that how you pronounce the Appalachian? Yes, Appalachian? It, it, no, no, it's a hard C. Is it a hard C? Appalachian. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you know, now I, I'm 36, Charlie. So people of my generation and younger, the mafia is like 
it, it's the Godfather, part one, two, and three. It's it's popular culture. Back before that case, and I think it was '57. It, it was it was uh, it was a rumor, right? It was it was a, a theory, a conspiracy well, theory. Well, it was it was sort of it. It was uh, everybody knew that there were gangsters out there, like Al Capone, and they had their individual gangs. None of us knew that all of these individual gangs were tied together in a sacred oath and a sacred um, uh, judicial system. I mean, the, the mafia really was a judicial system where uh, beefs were, were settled, scores were settled, and uh, they, they operated with a commission in New York City, a, a commission of um, seven mafia families that were in charge of the mafia the nationwide from sea to shining sea and they controlled so many things in america uh, you know they can they controlled the your entertainment <laughs> go to copacabana nightclub and it's owned by russell buffalino who was frank sheeran's boss he's played by uh, joe pesci in the uh, in the movie the irishman do you want to give a little background, too, about how Buffalino and Sheeran met with the truck driving scam and how the, his whole career got started with the mob? Because you can't be made if you're Irish, if I understand correctly. Correct. Uh, and Frank uh, Frank would be told by Russell from time to time, Russell would, would tweak his cheek and say to him, if only you were Italian, I could do so much more for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he would... <laughs> he uh, Frank was very bright, and as a as a boy, he lived in Italian neighborhoods in in Philly, and picked up some Italian. Later, when he was overseas in the war, he picked up some more, and he was actually fluent in Italian. And um, and he was able to have personal conversations with Russell Buffalino in Italian. So he was he was pretty close to being. He was about as made as you can get. Russell made up three rings, uh, and they're shown in the film. One for Russell, one for Russell's underboss, a guy named Billy D'Elia, and one for Frank Sheeran. And, and he said to Frank, you know how strong this makes you to have this ring to wear. So uh, Frank was, um, hot, was what they call big connected. <laughs> uh, Frank would express it. He's big connected. We say heavy here in Chicago. If you're heavy, you got a lot of clout. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> and and a lot of a lot of the scenes take place in Chicago, particularly in a in a taxi cab uh, um, recruiting war. Yeah. Well, can can we back up a little because I think you know one of the things that's fascinating about this, you know, as as Mike mentioned, the the mafia and the idea of these kind of larger than life figures really is become a popular culture trope, but I don't necessarily think people realize, as, as you alluded to, how involved the mafia and organized crime was in American life for a fairly significant period. Uh, the Teamsters who controlled the trucking, the international longshoremen who controlled uh, docks and getting uh, product into the United States, uh, Hollywood, even movies oh, yeah. were, were funded, uh, Las Vegas, the organized crime, uh, especially for you know a, a single country, Italy and a, and a very small part of the country in Sicily and Naples, to have such an oversized impact on the economy of America, um, you know, I, I, I would put this to you as a former prosecutor, this is actually 
kind of amazing in a way that uh, these people were able to set up these vast networks. I mean, um, I would think that in your former job, while you were, you know, obviously working to defeat these people, there had to be a modicum of respect for the fact that they were able to set up these tremendously complex clandestine operations. Well, there is in hindsight, but uh, more than 95% of the crime in America is street crime, the rapes, the murders, and that was what I did for a living. I was a prosecutor in, in the state of Delaware, the state of Delaware system. I, as, as high up as I was, chief deputy attorney general, teacher of interrogation, uh, with major cases that I handled, I knew nothing about the mafia. That's how, that's how secrecy gave them what, what it gave them. They were, they were maybe a little flashy. People would see uh, Sam Giancana of your Chicago uh, in nightclubs, that sort of thing. But no one knew, at least until 1963, no one knew that Sam Giancana sitting at a, at a restaurant in Chicago was a blood brother, literally a blood brother, to to um, uh, to uh, uh, an Italian boss in Philly named Angelo Bruno, or uh, and many others, and that it was all connected. I had an interesting thing happen at the Sun Valley Writers Conference. I gave a talk, and uh, I told the story of. Uh, of Johnny Fontaine, Al Martino, who plays Johnny Fontaine in The Godfather. Oh, yes, of course, the how, how he got the part. Yeah. Well, he, yeah, he's a friend of um, of my dear friend, Joe Pistone, the real Donnie Brasco. And Joe introduced me to Al, and Al told me the story of how he learned about the making of The Godfather from one of the McGuire sisters. They were a trio of, uh, a singing group trio of that era. And uh, he learned about it from one of the McGuire sisters, and he called up the man who was trying to get the thing produced, a man named Al Ruddy. And Al said, you can have the part of Johnny Fontaine in the movie if you lend me $25,000 that I need to try to promote this into a movie. And so... um, Al Martino did that. And then Al Martino got a call from Al Ruddy that they had um, a go, a green light, that this young director, Francis Ford Coppola, was going to do it. But Coppola did not want a singer to play Johnny Fontaine. He wanted a real actor to play Johnny Fontaine. And if he was going to use a singer, he wouldn't use Al Martino. He'd use uh, Vic Damone very popular uh, singer of the day. So um, he, uh, so his reaction was, you owe me $50,000. The 25000 I lent you, uh, Mr. Al Ruddy, and the 25000 I spent along the way. You sent me to Italy to meet with Anthony Quinn to try to get Anthony Quinn to do the role that, that Marlon Brando ultimately did, and it was all out of my own pocket. So you owe me $50,000. Al Ruddy laughed at that and said, you know, that, that, that's just not going to happen. 
Al Martino called his godfather, Russell Buffalino, and Russell said to him, you have the part, and you're getting your money back. And so, <laughs> and so that's why Al Martino is, is in the movie as Johnny Fontaine. All three of them, yeah. So a woman comes up to me after the, my talk, and she says, I'm, uh, my name is Wanda Ruddy. I'm Al Ruddy's wife. <laughs> you and Al need to talk. Well, she said to me, did you know that Russell Buffalino had final script approval of The Godfather? And I said, no, I did not know that. <laughs> that wasn't something that Frank Sheeran knew. And, uh, but I know it now. And she gave me Al's, Al Ruddy's phone number, and he never, he never returned my call. He didn't want it. <laughs> He didn't want any parts of me. She might have gotten in trouble for... For telling you for, that. Yeah, for talking about it. So that was um, the entertainment world. I mean, you, you can't get any bigger than that. We have final script approval of The Godfather. I mean, that, that this is remarkable. I mean, we've, we've got so much to talk about here. Uh, I do want to make sure that we give people uh, a chance to listen to your book real quickly, and maybe we'll do that into the break. But one, one thing before I let you go... How did, and it's a question that the guys and I were talking about before the show, you have had an unusual career in that you went from being a, a prosecutor, now you, your legal practice now focused, or your legal practice, I, I think you're, you're retired right now, but your legal practice at the end focused on medical malpractice. You obviously got Mr. Sharon out of jail. How did you, <laughs> what was the arc of this career? Because it seems to kind of go all over the place. You know what I mean? You also you, an English teacher and a welfare inspector. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what? Yeah. I mean, this—you seem to be. I mean, it, it's quite admirable in a way. And I'm, I'm just curious how this happened. Well, I was a hell of a right fielder with an arm that you couldn't believe <laughs> on the welfare department team. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know. I just—I've always been open to, to things and. Uh, uh, the, the turning point for me was um, a conversation. I wanted to be a prosecutor, and I was in Brooklyn Law School, and buddies of mine that I'd gone to college with at the University of Delaware who had gone to law school urged me to come to Delaware, that there was a lot of action there, and I would get a job as a prosecutor there. Come on down to Delaware. So I did that, and it was at a time when rules of, of engagement were being changed constantly by the U.S. Supreme Court. You're familiar with the Miranda decision yes, and other, yeah. other famous decisions, or not so famous decisions of the day. And I was hired by an attorney general named Laird Stabler, and in Delaware, the attorney general is responsible for all the crime, from a parking ticket to a first-degree murder. And so uh, he interviewed me, and he, he gave me the job. And what he said to me was, you're just the kind of guy I'm looking for. I see you worked in the welfare department. You know, you were a school teacher. You know, you've had some life's practical experiences. And so I want that from my, my deputies. And what I also want is because of all the new rules that keep coming out, and they were coming out daily. If it wasn't the U.S. Supreme Court, it was some other court that was changing the rules of police work. And he said, I want you uh, on murder cases to go to the scene to make sure 
that the police get it right, that they, they follow the letter of the new laws as the new laws come out, and that they anticipate what new laws might come, so that um, in the middle of a case, you find out that your case is gone because the Supreme Court has come up with a new rule while you were trying your case. So he says he wanted the, uh, uh, the police, all the police, to have my phone number and, and to uh, call me whenever there was a murder and for me to go to the murder scene. And I had a conversation with a detective named Charlie Burke who had just gotten a confession from a killer named Randolph Dickerson. Dickerson lived in an apartment building, and he had gone down the, uh, the, the um, uh, not the stairwells, but the fire escape, mm -hmm. and, and used the uh, screwdriver to jimmy the window and go into the room, uh, to, to the woman's bedroom, and, and try to steal from her because she kept cash in her room because she was a Bible sales lady. And she got home and surprised him. And he stabbed her to death with his screwdriver. And Charlie Burke got a confession from the guy. It took a while. And I said to Charlie, how do you get confessions? Because he was known for it. And he said to me, they want to tell you, child. And I thought immediately, that's a euphemism for leaning on them. I'm sure they want to tell you after you push them around a little bit. Well, it turned out that isn't what he meant at all. He meant really is a need to confess. And in my book, <clears throat> The Right to Remain Silent, which is a novel I wrote in 1988 after I had uh, left the Attorney General's office, and I used the cases that I had worked on for material in that book, The Right to Remain Silent, there is a line in the book that confession is a basic human need like food and shelter. And, and I believe that, and I've seen it over and over again. And if you know what you're doing, you can, you, you can milk that out of the guy. Uh, and I say guy um, because that's really what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so there were, that's where the crime is. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's pause here, Charles. We gotta, we, I want to make sure that people get to hear uh, you know, some of your reading. And uh, we're going to play a little segment that we've recorded here. As always, we thank uh, Shannon Van Volt, our reader. And this week we want to thank the genius Paul Quartet, who did the music behind us. Charlie, can you stick around with us for another half an hour and we can uh, talk about Frank and Jimmy a little more? I, sh I sure will. I just want to say something very quickly. When I was a, a kid in New York City, drinking age was 18, and I used to go to see a, a jazz a cellist by the name of Fred Katz with the Chico Hamilton group. Oh, yeah. So you're... Your cellist may be familiar with him. We'll find so, out. We'll find break, out. Yeah. I will ask. Right. I'll ask Junius when we get to the break. But right now, here is an excerpt. It is about Jimmy Hoffa. It is written by Charles Brandt from "I Heard You Paint Houses." That is out now from Steerforth Press. And of course, there is a movie about it, which we've discussed. After this, we're going to take a station break, and then we're going to be back talking with Charlie for the next half hour. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago one hundred five point five FM. This is I ninety four. Jimmy Hoffa had at least two little business secrets that became a source of concern to him. In both of these secret ventures, Hoffa's business partner was his close Teamsters ally, Owen Burt Brennan. Brennan was president of his own Detroit Teamsters local and had an arrest record for violence that included four incidents of bombing company trucks and buildings. 
Brennan referred to Jimmy as his quote-unquote brains. Hoffa and Brennan formed a trucking company called Testfleet. The brains and its partner put that company in their wives' maiden names. Testfleet had only one contract. It was with a Cadillac car carrier that had been having union problems with its Teamsters Union and independent owner-operator car haulers. This group of Teamsters held an unsanctioned wildcat strike. Angered by this break of union solidarity, Jimmy Hoffa ordered them back to work. With Hoffa's blessings, the Cadillac car carrier then terminated its leases with the independent Teamsters haulers. Many of them put out of business and gave hauling business to Testfleet. This arrangement helped Josephine Posliak, a.k.a. Mrs. Hoffa, and Alice Johnson, a.k.a. Mrs. Brennan, make $155,000 in dividends over 10 years without doing a single minute's work for the Testfleet company. Hoffa and Brennan also invested in a Florida land development deal called Sun Valley and had committed $400,000 in interest-free union money as collateral to further their investment. When he entered into these deals, Jimmy Hoffa had little reason to believe he would soon be a worldwide figure who would be held up to public scrutiny and have to answer for sins of his past however small they may have seemed to him. Justly concerned that the McClellan Committee would soon be discovering many of his little secrets, including the pension fund goose that laid the golden eggs, Jimmy Hoffa became obsessed with deflecting the committee's attention from himself. When the committee was formed in early 1957, its target was the then Teamsters president Dave Beck. According to Bobby Kennedy's right-hand man, Walter Sheridan, Hoffa secretly provided Kennedy with details of Beck's wrongdoings. Sheridan wrote in his 1972 book, The Fall and Rise of Jimmy Hoffa, Quote, he went about this by arranging for one of Beck's own attorneys to feed information to Kennedy about Beck, end quote. That simple sentence is a courageous one by Mr. Sheridan. Although Hava was still alive when the book came out and had literally just walked out of jail, Bobby Kennedy had been dead for four years. Had Kennedy been alive and had anyone picked up on the implications of that sentence, an ethics probe would have been fully warranted. Depending on the facts, Kennedy could have been disbarred for his complicity in allowing Beck's attorney to violate his ethical duty to his client and secretly rat on Beck on Hoffa's behalf. Sheridan went on to say that Hoffa had, quote, that same attorney arranged a meeting between him and Kennedy where he would offer to cooperate with the committee, end quote. Can there be any question that Hoffa's own godfather Pales took notice of these two sentences when Sheridan's book came out in 1972? To ruthless and powerful men such as Bufalino, Trificante, Marcello, Provenzano, and Giacoloni. Being a rat is a severe character defect, and ratting on your ally is a severe mistake. Such a person can never be trusted again, and the offense is unpardonable, to say the least. Hoffa landed on the streets of Detroit from prison around the same time Sheridan's book landed in the bookstores. The book labeled Hoffa a rat, and Hoffa linked credence to that label when, in pursuit of the IBT presidency, he publicly threatened to expose the mob's influence in the Teamsters Pension Fund under Fitzsimmons. But all that came many years later. In the late 50s, Hoffa's Machiavellian strategy of feeding his union brother Dave Beck to the wolves was a win-win strategy. By focusing its resources on Beck, the committee put Hoffa's test fleet and Sun Valley deals on the back burner, and Hoffa had Beck out of his way. Quote, Jimmy liked to control his environment. He didn't drink, so no one took a drink in his presence. He didn't smoke, so no one lit up around him. Sometimes he'd get all riled up, he'd get impatient, and he'd do things that would remind you of a kid scratching chicken pots. You couldn't tell him he was going to end up with pockmarks. You couldn't say a word. You just listened. End quote. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. 
And welcome back to I-94. This is Lump Radio's Books and Literature Program. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, everybody. And today we have been speaking with and will continue to speak to Charlie Brandt. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, I Heard You Paint Houses, which is a story of Frank the Irishman Sheeran and the death of Jimmy Hoffa. Charlie, how are you doing? Welcome back. Great. Great to be back. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh we went before the break. We were talking about you. You were talking about how confessions. You learned that many people in uh, the criminal world have a need to confess, and this really informed kind of your practice with Frank Sheeran, who for many years uh, was a unmade member. But I would say it's pretty accurate to say he kind of was a, a mob guy, who also, of course, was a close confidant of Jimmy Hoffa when he was uh, running the Teamsters Union. Can you talk a little bit about how you eventually gained Frank's confidence? Uh, you mentioned at many points in the book that you know he did want to get this and another notorious killing uh, off his chest. But it, you, know, you came in uh, when, when you first really were working with him it was because you helped him get out of prison early uh, for disability and stuff like that. So can you tell me a little bit about how that developed and how you were able to get Frank to trust you? And Charlie, before we do that too, would you also tie in why Hoffa was whacked? Because some of our readers might not know the story behind that too. So if we could tie in both of those, that would be fantastic. Okay, I'll do my best. <laughs> Thank you. I know that's a lot. No, no. Um, Chronologically, the first thing that happened was um, before I ever met Frank Sharon was was Hoffa's disappearance. He disappeared in 1975. Uh, he was supposed to have a meeting with uh, some mob bosses, the head of the Detroit outfit and uh, the head of uh, the Teamsters in uh, Union City, Pennsylvania, uh, Union City, New Jersey, uh, named Tony Pro Provenzano. Uh, and and he never returned home from that meeting, uh, and ha has been a mystery ever since what happened to him. He just disappeared off the face of the earth. Again, a, a voice that anybody would recognize. That's that's Hoffa speaking, just like that's the Beatles playing music. Or <clears throat> and so the uh, FBI put together a task force. Uh, and uh, a guy named Bob Garrity was put in charge of that task force. Uh, Bob, I met Bob when my book was out already, and he came to a book signing and asked me to make it out to Bob Garrity. And uh, I said, how do I know that name? He said, well, I was the Alpha case agent. We became really good friends, and he shared more material with me. This book, by the way, is a book that just keeps growing. It, it started out, it was about uh, 300 pages, and uh, now it's close to 400 pages because I kept getting more information from people, as I did from, from Bob Garrity. He gave me some terrific stuff, and uh, that, that's in the newest version of the book. So the way it, the way it began for me is um, I was a practicing medical malpractice lawyer, plaintiff's attorney. Uh, if you were injured by a hospital or a doctor, you came to me. Uh, of course, earlier I had been, uh, um, as you mentioned earlier, uh, I had been a um, uh, homicide investigator and a homicide prosecutor. When I left the attorney general's office, I had four men on death row 
uh, uh, waiting to be hanged in Delaware. But of course, it was uh, taken away the the, the uh, death penalty. But uh, Frank knew of me. He knew my reputation, and uh, he sought me out. Uh, he knew about the letter I'd gotten from uh, uh, from Ronald Reagan, uh, and uh, and he knew that I was now doing medical work. And so I got a call from a member of the Philly mob, Angelo Bruno's mob. They wanted me to represent Frank and get him out of jail on medical grounds, use my medical malpractice uh, law to do that. And it was actually pretty easy to do because the, uh, the wardens in these prisons, they, they're happy to get rid of somebody, and especially somebody with medical problems because the, it, it means that out of their budget they've got to provide nursing and whatever else they've got to provide for the guy. So I filed for it. I represented Frank at the hearing. And, and we won. He was freed with about 10 years left on his sentence. Uh, and so I now had the first, the first thing you want with, uh, in, in interrogation is you want the person to, to talk and talk and talk. You don't want, want there to be periods, awkward periods of silence. You want him to talk. And Frank said to me, took me aside uh, at, at a lunch and said, I want to talk to you. <laughs> uh, I'm tired of being written about in all the books on Hoffa. I want to tell my side of it, and I read your book, The Right to Remain Silent, in prison, and I want to write a book with you. And so I agreed to meet with him, thinking, well, at least I'll get dialogue from my next uh, Lou Razzi detective book, and uh, I, The Right to Remain Silent. And so... I met with him, and in that meeting, I developed uh, a rapport with him. Uh, in the very first meeting, he gave me 80% of what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, and, and the strategy of it is you can read about in the book and see in the movie. Um, it was to lure uh, Hoffa uh, to a meeting uh, and, and into a house for that meeting, and once he entered that house, Frank Sheeran shot and killed Jimmy Hoffa. And uh, he loved Jimmy Hoffa. He didn't want to do, the, do it. He was trapped into it. And he said to me, if Russell tells you to do something like that, and you say no to Russell, Jimmy is just as dead, and you're gone too. You're gone to Australia with him, meaning you're going down under. Uh, with him. And so so Frank had to do it, but Frank absolutely didn't want to do it and looked for ways to get out of it, as the book illustrates. And that was the, the, the one murder that bothered him uh, and that he desired to confess more than any others. But in the first meeting, we were, we were talking about Hoffa, uh, and he gave me about 80% of the Hoffa hit. Uh, and then he got a little leery about how much he was giving me uh, on that. And also he had some, it was clear that he had some inside information on the JFK assassination. And I didn't want to be involved with him. 
on that. <laughs> and so, was he worried about being a rat too? Because you know, it talks a lot about it in the book. Is is confessing? I mean, is that considered being a rat? Because I know Sheeran was very, well, very he, wary of having that tag placed on him. He would. He was very wary of it, but he felt secure with me because I had been his lawyer. Gotcha. So we had that part covered. And anyway, um, uh, he uh, he did get a lot off his chest in that very first meeting. But when I handed him a, a treatment and, and let him read what I had written, he turned to stone. He was surprised that he had given me as much as he had. <laughs> it was almost as if he'd been in an alcoholic blackout or something. And... He said, you can't write this. And I said, fine. I, I, my wife said to me, you don't want to be involved with these people. And my partner said the same thing to me. And so eight years later, <laughs> I get a call from him. Uh, his his uh, daughter, Dolores, had taken him uh, for absolution in the Catholic Church and had gotten him to confess to a... Monsignor, Monsignor Heldesor, St. Dorothy's Church, and he wanted to continue our meetings, and so we did, and that's where the, the, the bulk of the book, I had him for five years, and I didn't just have him to ask him a question, I had him to ask him, and then re-ask him uh, three years later, <laughs> and so... Um, it, it, it did him a world of good. Uh, in the end of the, of the book, you, you, you can actually hear us say a Hail Mary and an Our Father together. He returned toward his, toward his childhood Catholicism. His father had <clears throat> studied for the priesthood, and his mother went to Mass every day. And Frank, um, you know, while he, he, he still had a lot to atone for, in this world, um, he said to my wife once, I don't know if there's anything after this life, but if there is, and I got a shot at it, I don't want to close the door. And that was how he ended his life. By uh, he, he gave up eating. He was in a nursing home. And he said to his son-in-law, Mike, I'm checking out, Mike. And he committed suicide by uh, starvation. So, I just wanted to clarify something that was uh, that was said earlier, Charlie, about the the book expanding. So, I heard you paint houses. the The first edition hardback was published in two thousand four. The first paperback edition came out in two thousand five. That had an, another epilogue or afterward. And then this most recent one that we have in front of us is from two thousand eighteen Steerforth Press. There's there's like an extra sixty pages, and it, it's really it's really rigorous in in um, covering its own tracks in uh, corroborating what Frank said, what uh, had happened. It, it's great stuff. And, and there's a lot in there about uh, the, the Dallas incident. Um, and for, for people who are interested in, in the JFK assassination plot, I think they would be interested in this book. But uh, there's an episode early on in the book dealing with, with Bobby Kennedy and Jimmy Hoffa, can you can you tell that story real quick about uh, Bobby thinking he had uh, Hoffa dead to rights? 
And just for people that don't know, Bob, Bobby Kennedy, who was the brother of, of the late uh, John F. Kennedy, who was also assassinated himself, he, he led the McClellan Committee, which was investigating ties uh, between organized crime and the Teamsters. Was that under Hoover? Yeah. yeah no. Uh, no. No, no. No, not really. It was under uh, Senator McClellan uh, and the Senate Rackets Committee. Okay. But uh, Hoover was head of the FBI at the time. Okay. Hoover was head of the FBI, but this was Bobby Kennedy's job. Got it. And in fact, in fact, JFK was on that committee, that Senate committee, and and Bobby was the uh, interrogator of that Senate committee, and and Bobby did a tremendous job. So uh, I have a lot of respect as a law enforcement officer for Bobby Kennedy. Anyway, he um, uh, he questioned Hoffa, or I say he Bobby Kennedy questioned Hoffa. At the rackets hearings, uh, gangsters could go to those racket hearings, be subpoenaed, and refuse to answer. But the president of the Teamsters, by Teamsters uh, law, had to answer. And so there's some very amusing answers, verbatim, <laughs> that, that, that Hoffa gives to Bobby Kennedy. And Bobby Kennedy resented Hoffa right away uh, for making a monkey out of him. And the two of them were at odds. Seriously, it was it was a blood a blood battle between the two of them. They they almost came to blows once. Frank Sheeran had to pull them apart. <laughs> so uh, finally, Hoffa uh, was gotten. Uh, they had him dead to rights uh, on on an issue, and um, uh, it, and so. He fixed the jury. <laughs> they paid off. Can you jury. clarify what dead to rights means? They had him. They had well, him. You have no rights. You're, oh, you you're have no rights. Guilty beyond doubt. Okay, thank you. Yeah, they they had him um, uh, on on uh, on tape actually, uh, paying for documents from the Senate committee uh, with a guy who was a double agent. Yeah, there's a picture in the book of it. <laughs> yes. Side chesty, yeah, and that's that comes from that investigation. So they had, and, and Bobby said that if um, if Sharon isn't convicted, I'll jump off the Capitol building. Hoffa, if Hoffa isn't convicted, if Hoffa isn't convicted, I'll jump off the Capitol building. And Hoffa was not convicted; he was, uh, he, and so uh, Sharon's lawyer, or I should say Hoffa's lawyer at the time. Edward Bennett Williams, who was also the owner of the Washington Redskins a football team and the owner of a, of a baseball team, very, very uh, prominent attorney, sent Bobby Kennedy a, a toy parachute for his jump. <laughs> for his jump. You know, that brings up something I wanted to ask you, and we are running a little short on time. Uh, we've been speaking today with, with Charlie Brandt. He's the author of I Heard You Paint Houses, which is the story of Frank the Irishman Sharon closing the case on Jimmy Hoffa. It's also a movie you can see on Netflix by Mr. Martin Scorsese. You know, the, the death of Hoffa had larger implications, and I wanted to talk about them really quickly because the McClellan Committee and, and Bobby Kennedy, they were convinced that they were trying to get organized crime out of organized labor, which was a, uh, something that, you know, is a, is a good thing. But in the aftermath of Hoffa's death, um, P. 
people were convinced that labor unions were corrupt, and it has changed the way Americans looked at labor unions. And, and today, I think we are looking at labor as a very diminished force. Could you speak to that a little bit, you know, again, as a former prosecutor? Yeah. Because Hoffa was not an, he was an amoral and, and Machiavellian figure, but he was not an unalloyed uh, uh, negative thing either for, for organized labor. No, he was uh, strong for labor. Sheeran was strong for labor. Uh, and they put a lot of time and effort into it. And uh, they believed in helping the working men and women of America. At, at, if they helped themselves at the same time, uh, that was okay. because. Uh, well, we know that here in Chicago. Daly has always <laughs> said that uh, if you can't give a Daly a job, then there's uh, you know something wrong. So Yeah, the machine, yeah. baby. Yeah. So anyway, that was... Uh, you know, that was kind of spread out over the whole country. The racketeers of, uh, of the longshoremen that you see in the movie On the Waterfront, that's real. That's, uh, uh, Diagardi was the, uh, was the head of the, of the rackets on the waterfront. Yeah. And, and, and these people, um, played for keeps. Yeah. If you, uh, the mafia did not have, uh, ankle bracelets. No. They did not have they did not have home <laughs> confinement. No. If you made a mistake, you were killed. I had the good fortune of writing a book uh, with Joe Pistone, the real Donnie Brasco, and, as I mentioned earlier, called uh, Donnie Brasco, Unfinished Business. And, and Joe, in addition to introducing me to uh, Al Martino, introduced me to Lynn DeVecchio, who was the uh, supervisor, the FBI supervisor of the Mafia Commission case under Rudy Giuliani. And that's the case that put the mafia out of business. Uh, it, it's taking a while, but what you see on 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 um, uh, on the Sopranos mm. is nickel dime stuff. Yeah, Th these compared people. To, uh, these, yeah, compared to what they what they had under. Um, under Russell Buffalino and, and others. Come, just real and, quickly, because we got to we got to go to a break, and we want to always we always leave the author with the last word on the show. So we do have one more clip from your book to play. But Charlie, has there ever been a point where you were uh, dubious about Frank Sharon's uh, confessions to you? Have you ever doubted that this was the real story that that the Hoffa murder has been solved for you? Not not the real story that I was convinced of. But along the way, there were some lies, uh, particularly in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And but I I can spot them. I go by sound of voice. Uh, some other interrogators go by body language and look. And so I'm not looking. I'm not looking at the person. And I'll hear something wrong. I'll hear something wrong the way a, uh, a choir master might hear a boy out of tune in the choir yeah. up in the back in the corner. And. Uh, I would get it out of them, but, but there's no question that only the truth made it into my book. Very good. The book is I Heard You Paint Houses. It is by Charlie Brandt. We've been speaking with him today. And again, we're going to leave you with one final reading from Shannon Van Volt, Junius Paul. And I heard that was Jamie Branch on the trumpet, too, I would say. Uh, Charlie, cool. I just want to thank you. This is one of um, Mike and I are both from the Detroit area, and I re my grandfather was a union organizer, and I was I was just this is one of the most excited I've been to have someone on the show, and I want to thank you and Devin at Steerforth for coming on. Yes, thank you so oh. much. Thank you. 
So, Charlie, we'll let you go. We're going to uh, play one more hit from your book. Guys, we will be back next week with uh, Lisa Tadeo. She's That's the author right. of Three Women. You'll hear that next Sunday for all of us at I-94. All of us at I-94. That's easy for me to say. Thanks for listening this Sunday. You're listening to Lumpin' Radio. The pilot stayed put in the plane. I stepped in. The pilot turned his head away even though I knew him. He'd been around the block enough times with our friends to know not to look at my face. I looked out the window at the grass airstrip at Port Clinton, Ohio, and saw my black Lincoln with Russell sitting in the passenger seat. Russell had already started to nod off to sleep. Port Clinton is at the southern tip of Lake Erie. It's a fishing village just east of Toledo and over 100 miles from the city of Detroit by car. To drive around the lake to the Georgiana Motel in Detroit could take almost three hours back then if you stretched it and took a little bit of a roundabout route. To fly over the lake and land near Detroit would take maybe an hour. If you want to know what I felt sitting in that plane, I'm sorry to admit, but back then I felt nothing. It wasn't like I was heading into battle. The decision was made to paint the house, and that was that. Sure, I don't feel good about it if I think about it now. I'm in my 80s. Back then, you start feeling too much, and no matter how much nerve you have, the nervous tension builds up in you, and you get confused, maybe even act stupid. The war taught me how to control my feelings when it was called for. The sad part of it is that the whole matter could have been stopped by Jimmy at any time he wanted, but he kept sailing into the storm. He could have sunk a lot of people in the same boat with him if he kept going in that direction. We all told him what it is. He thought he was untouchable. Some people are like that. Like my father thought he was untouchable when he tossed me the boxing gloves. But everybody bleeds. Was I still concerned for my own health and Irene's health the way it crossed my mind last night at Brutico's when Russell told me what it was going to be today? Not even a little bit. They had only two choices kill me or put me in the thing. By putting me in the thing, they got a chance to make sure they could trust me. By being there to take part, I could never do anything back to them. I would be proving, in the best way you could prove it, that it had never been my intent to go out and kiss Tony Pro or Fitz for Jimmy. Russell understood these things. He saved my life over and over again. I had seven contracts out on me over the years, and Russell was able to square every one of the beefs. Even though he was a boss, Russell himself had to do what he had to do. They took care of bosses, too. I didn't sleep at night at the Howard Johnson's pondering these things, but I always came up with the same answer. If they had decided not to use me in the thing, Jimmy would have been just as dead, and no doubt in my mind I'd have been dead along with him. They even told me that later on. After what seemed like a quick up and down, I got out of the plane the way I got in, alone, with the pilot looking the other way. My wife, Irene, Russell's wife, Carrie, and Russell's wife's older sister were in Port Clinton at a restaurant having coffee and smoking cigarettes while they thought Russell and I had gone to do some of Russell's business. We already had done some business on the way out. We would stop to do more business on the way home. Among other things, they knew that Russell always had his eyepiece with him to look at diamond jewelry. When we got back together in three hours, they would never think I could have driven to Detroit and back in three hours when it would have taken three hours one way by car just to get me to our motel in Detroit. It wasn't something that entered my mind, but there was no doubt about my boarding this plane again safe and sound when I was done with my errand. There's no way they would have put the women in the middle of an investigation if something unnatural happened to me in Detroit. I'd be hooking back up with my Lincoln in Ohio and Russell and I would pick up the women. You might analyze it that the women being in Port Clinton was insurance and gave me psychological comfort zone, but that kind of thing never entered my mind. Besides, I had a piece in my back under my belt. Even today at my age in a nursing home, there's still nothing wrong with my second finger.
I-94 is London Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Charles Brandt, author of I Heard You Paint Houses, out now from Steerforth, and the subject of the Martin Scorsese movie, The Irishman, out now on Netflix. This episode originally aired on July 12, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.